0: Welcome, listeners, once again, to Aha yeah, uh-huh with Lisa and Phil and our co-host, Aaron. This week, we're talking to Michael Hilbig. He is an author. He is a college professor. Is that correct? Yes, yes. Okay. Um, guitarist see. in a punk uh, band. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Vision. I didn't... Yeah.
1: Right. Okay. Man of many talents. Yeah. Uh, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Now, do you have two books or is it just... I was thinking it, it, I thought something f- about a second book.
2: No, this is my first book, actually. So this oh, okay. is my first, uh, my first sto- short story
0: collection.
1: Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Has this been brewing for a while? I mean, when we talk to writers, a lot of them say, oh, my first book, it, I worked on it for 10 years. You know, I started in college right, or something happened and, mm-hmm. and I've re- revised it and over and over. And this is a, a collection of short stories. So how long has this been in the making? Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so I, I started this probably uh, in 2016. So this was originally my graduate school thesis. Uh, I got an MFA in uh, creative writing from Sam Houston state university. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so it was originally my graduate school thesis it was probably about 350 pages when I turned it in for grad school. And then, uh, after finishing grad school, I, I cut it down a whole bunch and, uh, edited a bunch and, you know, have been sending it out for, or it was sending it out for a couple of years after grad school. I graduated in 2017 from grad school and then, uh, yeah, I think it got picked up for publication in 2019 or, or 2020. And then, yeah, it's, uh, it's out now. It just came out last week. So, yeah, so. Uh-huh. Yeah, great, great oh, lessons. no wonder right. I
1: didn't
0: get it before a few days ago. And we got about halfway through Judgment Day.
1: Yeah. Okay. So, cool. But there is a central um, thread definitely, yeah. that runs through and it's in the, you know, it's hinted mm-hmm. at in the title, Judgment Day and Other White Lies. But mm-hmm. talk a little bit about the thread that kind of recurs throughout the, uh, you know, the story. Yeah. Story.
2: So um so the you know, and other white lies it plays on, you know, multiple levels, right? Fiction is is, you know, make make believe it's made up, right? So so uh, Greek one mythology? Level. Yeah. So so on, on one level it's you know the the you know, white lie of fiction, but we also think of white lies as like a not serious lie. Um, and I think we often think of stories as um fun and playful and, and and that's true, right? But um these are stories about storytelling and in particular sort of about you know the narratives that hold up sort of um, our American value system for, for better or worse. And, and um, in particular, I, I focus a lot on sort of white supremacy in this collection um, and trying to look at sort of uh from the, from the white characters perspective, how does oppression hurt uh white people? Right. Um, uh, and so, um, and it's not, you know, I, I try not to make it overly didactic. It's just supposed to be one of the things you sort of consider as you're reading along a lot of the uh endings in the collection are kind of fairly absurdist sort of endings. And it's sort of meant to show like sort of how our, our value systems are a little bit uh seemingly absurd. Um and then, you know, also looking at it through that Greek in, in Greek mythology, Roman mythology, uh Christian mythology, sort of looking at it through that lens um as a way into it is sort of, you know, um we talk about these concepts of like Western civilization, uh, but like those those cultures had no concept of Western civilization. So a lot of it is us reading retroactively into those um cultures what we what we want to um believe about how they hold up our own culture, right? And so um and so I'm, I'm sort of trying to deconstruct all of that in this collection. And also, you know, have fun on the page and, um, and make entertaining stories as well. But, uh, but you know, I'm, I, I tell people, I say I'm a, I'm a storyteller suspicious of stories. So, um, I'm, I'm interested in the way stories hold up. So, you know, in 2020 when we had this, like, um, huge explosion of protesting against police violence, right? Like how do our narratives about, um, you know, police shows, right? On television, law and order and all those kinds of things. How do they, you know, influence our view of those situations or, um, you know, how do Disney fairy tales influence our, our views on gender, right? So. Um, and so that's sort of a lot of the stuff I'm playing with in this collection. So that and other white lies is sort of, you know, the, the primary focus, I would say, is is whiteness and white supremacy. And so that's sort of the um that's sort of the driver behind it. But I also look at things like patriarchy and capitalism and all those other big systems that, you know, structure, <laughs> structure our lives in America and structure the way we think. So, yeah, that's, a, I guess, the long and, and short answer. <laughs> so, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, so
1: in reading it, it can be an uncomfortable read. You know, from a white man's perspective, you know, when you when you when you look like, for instance, it should I was, be. <laughs> I, yeah, I guess that's the point, right? I mean, but uh, when I look at uh, Ooh, ball game so of liberal. Zabalba, right? Uh-huh. Yeah, and there's an interlude in that where Big Daddy is watching a news report about uh-huh. uh, violence uh, against, uh, you know, violent uh, police violence act, act uh-huh. where the policeman was basically doing a mea culpa you know, kind of pouring his heart out and and, and talking about systemic racism. confessing
3: out, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. And uh you know, that's uh, that's nice, but the, the guy's already dead. Um And and nice.
3: he got off with no with no charges, right? <laughs> yeah. Right, right, no penalties.
1: Right. right. And that that's sort of you know, when you read that, you think he, he talks about how uh, it was systemic and that it worked its way into his life almost involuntarily or something or beside him. He never even knew this about himself until the event happened and, and then seemed to really dance around the issue. But, you know, that, that that's very that mirrors a lot of what we see every day um, with, with systemic racism. Um, it's sustained kind of in uh, the
0: you do have to also wonder how much of that is societally, familially, and um and or even self-perpetuating
3: overtly legislated even 13th, 14th, 15th amendments. Are-
2: yeah, Um, you know and the 13th amendment, you know, one of the things that I, I'm not sure that everybody knows about it is that, you know, it, it didn't completely outlaw slavery, right? It, it said that, you know, it it excluded it in the in the prison system, right? So, um you know and i i think there is a difference between our you know current mass incarceration and slavery right they're not the same thing but i would argue that one is influenced by the other right like that that we be, begin building this giant prison system um after the civil war right and then you know in the 1960s uh you know the the, the drug war gets going i mean well i guess after the 1960s but you know richard nixon right the drug war gets going and um you know that's uh you know that's also response to sort of civil rights legislation right these things sort of work in tandem right so you get you get some progress and then you get some regress right and so um you know I, you know one of the things that i try to focus on in this collection so if you look at that um narrative in, in ballgame at zibalba where the where the police officer who's um killed this black man admits to doing it on television and he talks about you know being a liberal and wanting to reform the system and, and that sort of thing and so um i really you know and it's not to say i don't think it's necessarily um uh The, the worst perspective to have in the, in American political system, but I do think that there is sort of a, a a blind eye, right? That, that liberal values in America tend to want to be inclusive and, and want to sort of, um, understand these other cultures, but, you know, we don't often look at the ways in which also liberal values uphold, uh, you know, I don't think white supremacy can exist with just, you know, the kind of people that wear armbands, right? It has to be a broader, um, a broader sort of societal function, right? And so, Looking at the ways in, like the the, how the progress narrative and the redemption narrative, and these things that tend to be more associated with liberalism, um, also uphold that that value system, right? And that you know, one of the things I like that the you know police officer does in that narrative, even though you know, yes, he's killed this guy, and it's, you know, there's no real excuse for that, but he does say he sort of says white people should get more comfortable with the idea that we're all racist, right? That that like, and not in you know, not in the invert like using slurs and that sort of thing, but like being raised in a culture that's as focused on our divisions as America is, we're all unconf- gonna-
3: Conscious expectations of things. Yeah,
2: we're we're all going to sure. have we're all going to have some of that, and a lot of that is held up by you know the ways in which we read stories, and so that's sort of I guess yeah, that's what I'm uh, getting at in this in this collection. Well, and, and I mean, yeah. the
0: correlation here is, and um and I've been reading a fiction piece uh, that was uh, uh, what is it uh, called Forever Fantasy Online, and one of the themes is a character is um that is played by a male. Um gets trapped in the game and mm-hmm. but he plays a female, a very just for rabbit type female who is but it's a cat. Like a uh the correlation is the uh you know the um it doesn't matter. Um oh kitsune. Mm-hmm. There's a kitsune correlation, but it doesn't have like the nine tails. Okay. Yeah. And um at one point another character tries to rape her. And the male on the outside, the female on the outside, the juxtaposition of the two He's all, you know, oh, yeah, blah, blah. You know, this couldn't, and and all the female characters are like, you know what? It didn't succeed. The guy was crazy at the time. He's better now. We need his skills to survive in this game. You need to kind of get over it. And he's like, mm-hmm. but you're women. Why would you accuse, excuse attempted rape? And it's like because we've lived with it all our lives. When I was yeah. seven, my dad was teaching me to um, how to kill someone with a pen. Or a pencil because I was going to be pretty. Yeah. And so I should expect to protect myself. Mm -hmm. I, you know, if you're walking alone, a woman expects to maybe have her keys between her fingers. She has to be aware of her surroundings 100%. She has to be ready to, you know, to basically defend herself and it really bugs me. It's one of the things I was kind of raised with, though. My dad didn't want to lock his door because he didn't want the evil to control his actions. Hmm. That was That's why but he didn't lock his door. from
1: himself. But,
0: yeah, but it's like um,
1: yeah. so, big daddy. His reaction oh, yeah. to this whole ordeal mm-hmm. was. You know, effectively, this police officer got away with murder. Just uh, you know, the, the, the mm-hmm. sense of hopelessness. Yeah. You know, the, the police officer was almost lauded. He was, he uh, was declared
0: unfit for trial right. by the judge. Yeah. The because happens. he, yeah. you know, because he confessed. There's
3: nobody in their right, right mind would say, yeah.
0: Exactly. exactly say that, that. But yeah. And
3: so, mm-hmm. if, if if liberals were supposed to be, you know, the the last hope, then there was, you know, if this is the way it goes down. There's really no hope at all. It's kind of,
2: I mean, like this conclusion. I mean, Yeah. I mean, I think there is a sense of, um, there's a sense of, I mean, there's a sense of hopelessness in some of these narratives. I would say that, but I don't personally in my own life, I don't, I don't believe that there's, there's no hope. Right. Um, I think that what I'm, what I'm trying to get at is like within the logic system of which we are trying to make progress currently, um, that we need to start approaching it from some different angles and that sort of, I guess. Um, and I think, you know, so, so, you know, as long as we're in this framework where like, you know, we all accept that this, you know, sort of incremental, um, you know, progressive approach of using legislation primarily to uh, produce change is, is um, to me, I think it's 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 not for nothing, right? But it's it's a fairly. Um, I think that I think that if you look at history, right, that that the amount of times that radical change is lasting is far more often than those incremental changes which get rolled back and rolled forward and rolled back again. Yeah. Um, and so I, I th- you know, I think where where I'm trying to come at this from, and I guess the reason that I'm I'm trying to, you know. Poke at liberals and liberalism uh, a little bit is is uh well you know full disclosure I'm a socialist but but I also like you know I feel like um I feel like even without without being in that framework I think that you know sometimes you know, c- certain populations have been so sufficiently dehumanized that like trying to argue with people to get them to um, humanize these people um, white people in particular after all these narratives we've been fed um, sometimes is a harder pursuit than than getting white people to understand the ways in which. Uh, oppression also hurts us, right? So, um, you know, we get offered privilege instead of, you know, like material resources, like, you know, sick time and, you know, vacation time and, you know, like, you know, the New Deal was, was, you know, when FDR did the New Deal, in a lot of ways, it was sort of a bargain with, uh, white workers to, um, stop allying with Black workers, right? And in, in the, in the 1920s and 1930s and, um, and you know a lot of these divisions exist for that reason, and then they get rolled back. You know, when we get the Civil Rights Act passed, we start to see all this privatization, and a lot of um, white people start losing their benefits, right? And so, I think that you know, I think that the, the the progress that we really need is more of you know, we need to have a more class perspective and understand if white people can sort of understand the ways in which they're also harmed by it, their families are also harmed by. It. I mean, you look at a state like. West Virginia, right? And, um, it's like 94% white, I believe. Um, and you know, they've been ravaged by this opioid crisis, right? And, and in a lot of ways, that's a result of all these sort of draconian drug war policies that were instituted because of systemic racism, right? And now white people are suffering those policies too in, in what's supposedly a white supremacist society, right? So I think that really our division really only benefits these billionaires and, and elites at the very, very top of the spectrum. And it doesn't really Benefit the majority of white people, and so maybe if we could get them to yes. see that, like, hey, you have a stake in ending this system of white supremacy too, that it might be a uh, a faster approach politically than waiting for every you know dehumanized population to become humanized. I guess is is, is what I'm kind I, of.
3: I love at. what you did with the spectators, the crowd, in the Zibalba story too. It was uh, it was all the elites, there were presidents and former presidents, and. uh Uh, Macron is holding the bet between Steve Bannon and the Saudi (laughs) king and, uh, the president holds out his hands and his daughter's telling, oh, you've got the biggest hands, daddy. You've got the biggest. (laughs) have been my favorite part. That (laughs) That was my biggest laugh of the whole book anyway. (laughs) (laughs) I
2: Um, I mean, that's, that's, I mean, that's what I'm, I mean, what I'm getting. I mean, I think like in America, right, that, that, uh, racism has become the primary driver of our sort of Financial system, right? Like, or the, or the the justifications behind how uneven it is, right? Um, <clears throat> but at the end of the day, um, you know, it's it's. The, I do think the financials take more precedence. It's why I, you know, why I can, you know, consider myself a socialist and want a sort of more class based politics because I think, um, I think that in order to. Um, truly, make uh, uh, progress sufficiently for a lot of these populations, right? And uh, and 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 for you know for just white workers as well, right? Is, is that you know we need we need to have more of a share in our in our economy, right? We 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 value we talk about valuing democracy in America, but you know basically every corporation is a totalitarian entity with one person at the top that gets to make all the decisions that affect a lot of people's lives. And in in the cases of somebody who owns a corporation that's like developing energy or or food or things that we need for necessities, right? Like we're giving just one person a lot of stake in our sort of um, collective interests, right? We all have an interest in having good medicine or good food or or whatever. Right. And and so I do think that uh, a system in which allowed workers to sort of have collective control over more of those mechanisms would, would be a more fair and more egalitarian system. But, you know, I mean, it's, you know, in the, in the course of world history, right? That, that there's just, there, there's been a lot of division on those points and, and and a lot of, um, difficulty in getting that sort of stuff instituted. But, but I, but I do think that, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, when we're looking at what's to come in the future with climate change and AI and some of these big overruling systems that I, I do really believe, uh, that that at some point we're really gonna to have to address this capitalism thing in a more in a more coherent, in a more in a more full sort of way that than we have and, and, and not just accept it as the as the modus operandi, <laughs> you know, the sort of just the way things are, right? Like I think these right. systems have been intentionally designed, you know, and so
3: yeah.
0: Well, yeah I, something's I gotta thought. be
3: done about the wealth inequality and Oh you know,
0: definitely. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and And, and I'm I'm thing. basic
3: I'm democratic socialist too. I'm Green Party mm-hmm. registered yeah. but. But yeah, yeah. It's along the same lines.
2: Yeah, I mean, I you know, I'm a I'm a Marxist. So I'm, a, I'm probably more traditional style, but also, you know, I'm not I'm not one of these people. I I understand, right? That that there's a big uphill battle, right? And you gotta like. Talk to a lot of people and convince a lot of people and, and, and you gotta actually like, you know, you also gotta offer people, you gotta offer people hope, you gotta offer them a different picture of the future. You can't just, you know, yeah. talk about Practical. why this system is better Practical than Practical
3: solution. One.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm, I don't, I, I, I try to be patient with people who have different views than me and I, I don't try to, you know, I'm not, I don't try to be overly ideological about it if, if I can help it. Right? But, um, you can't always have yeah, that point it. with negative reinforcement.
1: You know, you can't
0: well, always yeah. be contentious. Well, one of my big things is that uh, trickle down economics, the phrase has been kind of demonized. Yeah. Okay. And that's great. But trickle down economics is tax breaks for the rich that are supposed to come down to us because they're saving money. Yeah. Because they have more money to invest. But what they're investing in is technology that removes the human, from the equation.
3: Or they're just hoarding it.
0: Right, yeah. exactly. And that's the thing. Every time a Republican says tax breaks for the rich so that they can, you know, invest in their employees, that's trickle-down economics, people. Every time. Yeah. It's been trickle-down economics since the 80s. That's all it's ever going to be. The rich are And it be never richer, trickles down. And the rest of us are going to not be able to afford a new car.
2: Yeah, there's there's a lot of... there's, there's or some, a used uh, car. There's a lot of like political theorists who said that, you know, basically you just had like, you know, five Reagan presidencies in a row or whatever, you know, That's that right, like,
1: gosh, yeah. Yeah. And, 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 yeah Well, in Los Angeles, the tent cities and everything like that, just the issue, mm-hmm. you know, that uh, people are being actually just flushed out of the system, sort of like.
0: And then um, too, yeah, um, yeah, they're out here. I recently saw this news story where um this uh, police officer was in trouble and nobody got killed. Okay. But there was an APB put out on a white man, blue eyes, dark outfit. And who did a police officer search in a Walmart? A black man in a tan jacket with no hat.
3: Yeah. Or his eyes blue.
0: Huh? <laughs> I'm not sure if where his eyes that are blue. Was, But it was something <laughs> to that effect. I mean, yeah. I, I don't have the details exact, but white guy APB, black guy got searched. Why? Yeah. Okay, and then the, during the press conference, somebody was trying to say that, you know, sometimes APVs change. And I'm like, well, until it changes what the
1: yeah. Yeah. expletive
0: inserted here. Well, yeah,
1: the book definitely, and you uh-huh. kind of suggested this, but the book definitely uh, has a political, right. it has a political bend to it, but it's, it's, it really turns it inward on, uh, people that uh, the left look inside yourself, you know, yeah. that, it, yeah. that it, it, it's a reflection <laughs> Of thing. Institutional racism is what I always go back to, you know. It's just it's there. And, and really
0: they can it. legislate the, the Jesus out of whatever you want to. And it does I mean, need to be done. Institutional racism um, is intentions.
3: Basically yeah. what critical race theory is, is exposing institutional racism. That's kind of just the whole right.
1: Yeah.
2: I mean this this whole conversation Purpose. on on critical race theory. I mean, somebody I, I read a lot a lot of like what is actually critical race theory in preparation for this book. And by no means are most K through twelve schools teaching it because it's all mostly pretty complex stuff written by college professors, right? So right. it's like people at the academy study it, and then some of that theory then gets trickled down into how like high school teachers teach history, right? But it's but even then, you know, I, I find it so uh, in so many ways so ridiculous because you know if you've ever been in a a history classroom in, in America in, in high school, right? That the narrative you're getting is already really watered down and not true in a lot of ways. And, and there are people that are fighting to make it more not true, right? And so it's, and yeah, the book though, I mean, it is, it has a, it has a political bent, but I do, you know, just for, for listeners and other people out there, I do want to stress it's not like, I don't yes. try to make it overly didactic, it's, right? It's
3: a lot of fun. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I, I try to, I try to really, and it is, there is a lot of stake in it about, you know, um, these are what are called metafictions, right? So metafiction is just a term that means they're stories that are self-consciously aware of being stories. So they reference storytelling a lot. I have a story where I insert myself as a character. I don't want to give that one completely away, but you know, because it's a critical point in one of the stories, but you know, in a lot of ways I'm critiquing the narratives that have existed in my own head, right? So I'm, I'm as critical of my own, and my own beliefs and values as I am of anyone else's, right? I don't feel like I have the right to do that, uh, to ask anybody else to do that investigation if I'm not also doing that myself. But, you know, I I do think, you know, the stories are about storytelling. They try to teach the reader how to read the stories as they're reading them. And then also maybe to consider, right? Like when you're getting these other stories that are not self-aware of being stories, are you still doing that? Of like, who is this intended for? What's the audience who produced this? Uh, Why did they produce it? What might their values be? Um, You know, that's, I'm trying to like, you know, from the from the white male writer's perspective why are you listening to me <laughs> you know in a lot of ways i think when i was in, when i was in grad school there was a there was a, you know a couple of big scandals that happened around sort of cultural misappropriation and um and white writers sort of appropriating co- other cultures and, and, and perspectives and writing about them in ways that was perhaps insensitive. And so, you know, I was trying to play with that a little bit, right. And sort of um, do it from my angle, right. As somebody who's doing, who's self-consciously appropriating things, but then calling myself out for it and, and mm-hmm. trying to get the reader, to, you know, sort of call me out along with it. And then think about how they're doing that and the other stories they read and if they're doing that right. And, and sort of, um, you know, I'm an English teacher. So, you know, we say what our, our value is is that we you know teach critical thinking. So you know, a lot of ways this book is trying to teach critical thinking as as you read it, and then also the stories I think are are, are pretty fun. There's lots of sex, drugs, and rock and roll in them, and you know, there's right. a lot of I, I cover a lot of sort of taboo material and, and sort of so you know, a lot of stuff for for also just to be entertained by as well, right? Because stories yeah, are it's at the the- it's, it's at least
0: PG thirteen. It's definitely for mature <laughs> audiences. Yeah. 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 yeah, as I've,
1: far I've, as
0: I would be concerned, uh, there isn't a narrator. Okay. Each story is like, it it tells its own story, not as from a narrator's perspective. But then you also, as you put it, and I think I can put it in this way, you break the literary third wall on occasion, which creates, and that creates an emphasis for that particular situation, which I think is very well done. Yeah,
2: thank you. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, I, I... I, I'm, you know, I nar- I studied a lot of narrative theory when I was in grad school, and so in, in a sense, I'm trying to get at narrative is a bigger, broader category than we typically think of it. Right? We think of it in terms of like the stories we read, or stories we watch on television, or in movies, and that sort of thing. But you know, it encompasses history. It encompasses a lot of our political and social theory. A lot of poetry is narrative poetry. We don't. We tend to sort of focus on the lyric poetry in, in our culture, but those early. You know, the Odyssey, the Iliad; those early sort of ancient texts were all narrative poems, right? Looking at not only like what stories do we tell, but how do we tell stories? So I, I do a lot of playing around with form in this collection, and, and breaking the third wall is one part of that, right? But yeah, it's 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 sort of looking at narrative theory says that narrative is like a fundamental form of human perception, right? It's the way that we interpret how things change over time, and um, and how we inter- and, and sort of. Insert ourselves as, as the heroes of our own stories, right? As we move birth through our life cycle to death, right? And so, and so, you know, narratives are very powerful, right? They're a very powerful form of rhetoric that, you know, oftentimes if you see a public speaker or a good one, right? They'll start their presentation off with a story, right? It's, it's sort of, um, you know, stories can hijack our brains in a lot of ways. So that's why I say I'm a storyteller that's suspicious of stories, right? That because they do have that power, right? And, and so, and so that, that, you know, getting back to the title of the book, right? Judgment Day and other white lies. We think of a white lie as this non-serious sort of fun, thing. And, and we think of stories that way too, but oftentimes stories are putting ideas in our head that are, that are harmful. Right. And, and, um, and, and we, and we don't give it enough attention, I think in, in our, in our society, and our culture, you know, and, we think a lot about like what, what kind of food we consume, but we don't think as much about what kind of media do we consume and how does that affect the ways that we think about the world and the ways in which we act in the world. And so that's what I'm, what I'm trying to do a little bit is just to sort of unpack some of that and try to give readers a way to look at that in a way that's fun. Right. And so like I said, I have you know, a lot of the sex drugs and rock and roll in here too. So it's, you know, it's a, uh, you know, there's the
1: punk rock soon, Yeah.
3: soon after I started into reading this, I approached it like reading Vonnegut kind of, I was looking up all the names of every character because there's always meaning in most of them anyway. And, uh, You've got a lot of Greek names, a lot of, a lot of classic Greek mythology names, but I wanted to ask about Tex Randall. Is he based on Randall Tex Cobb?
2: Um, no. Uh, so, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, I thought of him after I wrote it, but no, I was I, I was just yeah, – uh, I
3: envisioned the version from Raising Arizona, like yeah. the Lone Biker, of the Apocalypse, there's, and he's the, a, the ringleader of this group of elites.
2: <laughs> yeah, that. so that story was started as sort of – I wanted to do a sort of weird absurdist interpretation of like a Cormac McCarthy sort of Western. And there's that Hunter Thompson quote. Cormac about,
3: McCarthy's where you got your semicolon quote of bet Yeah.
2: yeah. And, um uh, and, and so I had, there's that Hunter Thompson quote he does about Houston, Texas, where he talks about it being a land of pansexual cowboys. And, uh, <laughs> and so, yeah. So, so Tex Randall is sort of based on that Hunter Thompson okay. quote about Houston. Uh, it's just my hometown, and Houston's an interesting place. So you know, it, it's the setting for most of the stories in the collection. I'd say
3: they're all set there, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
2: And and so Houston's in it. Houston's the fourth largest city in America, but it's not very you know, it's not flashy like you know, Chicago or LA or one of those places. Pretty modest sort of city, and there's you know this huge oil oil and gas industry in, in Houston, and um, and there's no zoning laws in Houston, so uh, we have this like strange urban sprawl that's that, like a liquor store, a school and, you know, a church on the same street, you know, oftentimes, you know, and so got everybody covered. Yeah, there's no sort of centralized entertainment district, like you get in a lot of cities, there's just little pockets of things going on all over the place. And so, you know, Houston has this sort of, for lack of a better word, put sort of postmodern feel to it, right, as a city. And, you know, that the, these stories are influenced a lot by Uh, what's called, you know, sort of postmodern experimental fiction. So.
3: Yeah. Do, do Texans actually refer to themselves as the Third Coast?
2: Uh, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, there's a lot of,
3: um. The first time I'd seen that reference.
2: Yeah. There's a lot of, uh, rap groups in Houston that talk about Uh, the Third Coast. And so yeah, um. Gotcha. And and rap
3: music is a pretty big, a pretty big thing
2: In, in Houston, Texas. Uh, we have these, we, we, we are the uh first city was called screwed and chopped uh there was a dj named dj screw from here who would like slow down records till they were like really really slow so you could like listen to them when you're stoned or <laughs> on drugs or whatever and so you know the, the big they, they would drink what's called lean which is like this cough syrup with sprite mixed mm-hmm. into it and so yeah that's been, that's been a big thing in houston for you know one of, one of the things that houston is sort of known for there's actually a, a, a character in one of the stories named uh, professor threat who's a
3: is right. actually based I, was, on... I was wondering if those were real rappers in the local Houston area or not.
2: So they're not, they're based on, so, so they're
1: he's
3: based loosely, on. Them.
2: yeah, he's loosely based on a guy named Bun B who's in a group called UGK uh, that actually did teach a class on, uh on rap music at Rice university. So, I mean, I, I, it's very loosely based. I, I I take a lot of liberties with that sort of overall setup. That's where I got the original idea for that character from. So yeah. Cool. One of on
1: our locations works, uh, Houston. And, uh, you know, the joke is there's like Houston and there's Austin and then there's Texas. Yeah. It's like they're, they're, they're very different from Dallas like or, you know, you know, Paris, Texas. I guess just one of the small cities in between or whatever. The coastal city is more progressive. It's,
2: yeah, Texas is a, Texas is, I think for people outside of Texas, I think that, you know, uh, Texas ha I mean, then part of, part of it's, you know, Texans fault, right? Because we have sort of this out, uh, outsized thought of ourselves, and in Texas history, is like one of those things that people take really seriously here, right? Like that we sort of are this unique state in this, uh, you know, sort of unique spot. We're our own country, right? That sort of thing. Uh But yeah, but um, but I think when when the people outside of Texas, you know, when I used I used to go see a lot of bands when I was growing up, and I played in punk rock bands and stuff, and uh, you get people that have been to Texas for the first time, and they're like, "Why aren't people walking around on horses and wearing cowboy hats and stuff?" And and uh, you know, like like the you know the big cities in Texas are like big cities anywhere else, right? You know. The, they tend to have more progressive leaning values, and, and I think in general that Texas, for all the for all the craziness we have in some of our politicians, and they just passed this bill this week that says that you know helping your child uh, transition genders is is child abuse. So that's really a pretty scary thing. I think yeah. like a lot of the reasons Texas is more conservative has you know less to do with our population makeup and more to do with like sort of the system of laws that have been allowed to exist in Texas. We have lots of Always had lots of voter suppression laws and lots of efforts to sort of, you know, in Houston, for instance, you know, if you look at polling locations, I live sort of in a, in a suburb that's, you know, a more, uh, Republican leaning area and I can go vote and get in and out in like five minutes. But you, if you go to TSU, which is like the black university, the, historically lined up black college, the block. yeah, yeah, there's, there's like a, a line for miles, right? And so that's, you know, that's intentionally designed sort of, you can, you know, where you can see, you can see that. I mean, you know, I, I, it's interesting when I finished grad school as, you know, out of, out of work in a, a got a job driving Lyft for a little bit uh, just to sort of make ends meet while I was looking for more serious work. It's really interesting when you do that in a major city, you can just sort of like see architecturally how like systemic racism works. So like, you know, if you're on the West side of town where all the rich people live, the roads are really nice and, you know, everything's fine. And then you cross, you cross a certain freeway, you go into the East side of town and everything's run down and there's train tracks everywhere. And, you know, it's just like, you can really see it up close. Mm -hmm. Why don't we go ahead and stick our commercial break in here. Uh Uh-huh
3: speaking of red and blue um my wife and all my kids see colors for numbers do you have synesthesia
2: no i don't i had a um a bass teacher when i was growing up who uh did, i play bass guitar and so mm-hmm. I, when I was the, one of the guys i was taking bass lessons from he you know if i brought in a song uh, that i wanted to learn how to play he could like know what the notes were because he could see them in color as like uh as yeah. we were playing them I and i always just thought it was really cool and um and I just decided to incorporate that in a, in a story. Try to imagine it from that
3: perspective. Yeah. And fractals are a recurring thing. What's what's your
1: is it yeah. about the
3: golden ratio or is it something I, more to it or less yeah. to it?
2: Um, I mean, I think that's sort of like what I'm getting at with sort of you know complexities and ways in which we think about um, critical thought. So I was when I was in grad school, I had this really cool. Um, and for the person who taught me all the you know classical mythology that goes in this collection is this woman named Dr. Bell from same state university. She's a medievalist and, uh, and she runs like game theory on these medieval texts and write these really cool papers about them. And, um, and so, you know, she, she plays around with all these wild theories and when we were talking about classical literature, I just sort of one day was like thinking about fractals cause they've just always been a thing that sort of fascinated me and thinking about the ways in which, you know, a story exists within a genre, which exists within, you know, a tradition, which exists within a whole culture. Right. And so think about the ways in which the micro level, and the macro level sort of have this similarity in shape, um, and i think it's an it's an it, you know i i started writing uh you know fractal criticism papers of other literature when i was in grad school just playing around with it and um i think it's a useful model in in ways in which to think about um you know how stories exist how our perception is shaped um um you know that that um you know in order to understand right if you're if you're thinking about it like a detective fiction right like the in order to understand how that story means right you have to know what the de- other detective fictions do so you know does this detective fiction have a damsel in distress or not or does it have a sidekick or not or um you know so we, what?
3: Yeah, leading into my next question I, yeah. I, I i assume you are then are you familiar with vonnegut's story shapes
2: um yeah i i, I it's been a long time since I, i've read yeah. vonnegut but yeah yeah i think that I, I but there's it.
3: there's like a he he gives talks about how like you can break it down break stories down into i forget yeah. if it was six or eight different types yeah and i mean i'm
2: not the i'm not the first person who's had this i mean there's uh tom stoppard uh played around with fractals he had a a, a play called acadia he's the same guy that wrote rosencrantz and Guildenstern and are dead which is a really fun play uh but he wrote another play called acadia which um it's a, a historical play but like the f- things don't match up so like there'll be a table with like you'll have something from like the American revolution with like a, you know, a telephone sitting on it or something, you know? And so, um, uh, and, and showing in the ways in which our, you know, when we look backwards, we still have that sort of, there's, there's Jorge Luis Borges, who's uh, a really fun, fun writer. He's, he sort of used a fractal construction in, uh, in what's the, uh, the garden of the forking paths. Um, there's, you know, David Foster Wallace claims that, you know, infinite Jest was originally written as a, What's the name of that? Uh, Sierpinski, uh, Sierpinski Gasket, I think is what it's called. But it's like this fractal sort of triangle structure that you sort of originally structured that book off. So I'm not the first one to, to do it. I, I do think narratives do have a sort of inherently sort of fractal shape. And I think that you can do a lot with that model, right? Like socially and politically, right? Thinking about how do my actions at the micro level affect the macro level? And then how does what happen happens at the macro level affect what I do at the micro level? And I think, you know, thinking about symmetry is not something that's just, you know, uh left and right symmetry, right? That bilateral symmetry, but like also symmetry under magnification. Right. So, you know, how does, how do I have a shared symmetry with the culture in which I exist in? Right. So um yeah. So that's sort of a lot of what I'm playing around with in the fractals there.
3: Yeah, You said that, scholars propose that the odyssey is a series of concentric circles mm-hmm. So after that, that every time you mention concentric circles i'm like well this is an odyssey here and there's like other stories with concentric circles
2: yeah no that was deliberately yeah. um you know i studied really closely i studied the iliad the odyssey and the aeneid when i was in uh graduate school um and then you know the, the of course the you know the greek tragedies and comedies and you know um and i think those texts are really rich um and, and we tend to mystify them a lot and so a lot of that thread that I'm getting at there is, you know, it's like when we think about them in terms of this. Grand Western civilization. I mean, these were the entertainments in their culture, right? And so, um, some sort of like thinking about reading the book, you know, I'm re- retelling sort of contemporary versions of these myths. So for instance, you know, you know, I take the Perseus and Medusa myths and I make Perseus a, a graffiti writer named Percy who's right. painting Dusa portraits on buildings in the city of Houston. They cause the viewers to become so enraptured that they just sort of stand there drooling on themselves, right? And so I think, you know, what I'm trying to do is on one level, you know, reinterpret those myths in an interesting way, but another level, also trying, you know, especially with things like drugs and orgies and that sort of stuff that's definitely in that Greek mythology, you know, sort of trying to show, like, you know, if you were reading that in 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 your Greek culture, how would that read to you? And I think, like, the way that I'm trying to present those myths would be, like, something akin to, like, how a Greek would read Greek mythology, sort of, you know, that, that like, I'm playing with a lot of taboos, and it might seem fairly provocative in, in our culture right now, but I think, like, a lot of those myths would have been uh, provocative to a, a Greek citizen living in Athens, right? So yeah,
3: yeah. the Bell Witch Hunter and The Curse of Jacksonian history. Mm-hmm. Is that the longest sentence you've ever written?
2: Uh probably not actually. Um I've experimented with writings. I've so I you know I really love I really love writers that play with form a lot. Uh William Faulkner is a is a guy that I really like a lot. He has sentences that'll go on for like yeah you know a Faulkner and
3: Joyce are known for it. Right.
2: Yeah. And so it's I use long sentences a lot. Um you know, I do try to produce a little bit of
3: the entire story though. One sentence with a a period. Yeah.
2: It's a, it's a, it's a micro fiction. It's, it's 500 words long. Exactly. And yeah, it's one sentence. Uh, you know, I like to use, uh, I like to use long sentences to sort of induce a little bit of anxiety in the reader, right? Like, how can I, can I get to a stopping point? Right. And, um, and I think they're effective for that. And it's just sort of fun to play around with the form. That one I think is just, You know, that story is based on a real urban legend, uh, you know, that, uh, Andrew Jackson, before he was president in Tennessee, there was like this, like, famous farm named John Bell's farm that like, you know, became haunted by this witch and Andrew Jackson was going to go down there and unhaunt the farm. And, uh, and it's been told in varying different ways. There's lots of different versions. I take a lot of liberty with it myself, but yeah, it was just, it was, uh, you know, I think that that, that story tells, it's, it's almost like something like a thematic statement for the whole book in a lot of ways. You know, it's, um, it's like really right. kind of think about you know questioning what you've been told right? like 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 you know we've we've been we've we're fed a lot of propaganda in America and it, you know again it goes to benefiting those people at the very top right and um and so like to 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 be more uh, consciously aware of of where our history comes from and and who's telling it and what stakes do they have in telling it um and yeah and I and I think that the and I think that Andrew Jackson is a particularly ugly and controversial figure in American history and so um. I thought it'd be fun to think about, like, what if we were just living according to Andrew Jackson's
3: version of history? So,
2: yeah.
3: Actually, the, have, yeah,
0: okay, that ahead. led
3: me to research, a you know, read about the Bell Farm and the Bell Witch. Mm-hmm. And I found out that that's, uh, that's on the Red River. Mm-hmm. And I used to go camping uh, in Kentucky and the same Red River in the Red River Gorge a little bit north. I had no idea of the legend until reading your story.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I just, I, I don't, I just stumbled upon it. It's just one of those things I stumbled upon when I was on the internet one day and I was working at this book at the time that I stumbled upon it. And uh I said, Oh, wow, that's cool. I should use that for something. And, uh, and uh, originally I wrote it for a contest that I didn't end up winning, but there was a, a short fiction contest from uh Gulf coast, which is a literary journal uh, from based out of, you know, from the university of Houston uh, and they have a prize called the Donald Bartholomew prize. And, um Donald Bartholomew is this writer I really, really love. He helped found, found the University of Houston Creative Writing Program. He's, he writes these really bizarre, um absurd stories that are like just uh y- you know, that are just not typical of what you'd see in fiction. He has a uh a famous book about Snow White in which he uh he frames Snow White as like this woman in a polyamorous relationship with seven guys <laughs> in this house together. Uh it's a pretty there wild go. wacky, wacky book. Uh, there's actually like a little postmodern theater group that put it on stage, uh, a couple of years ago and we went, me and my wife went inside and it was a lot of fun. Yeah. And, uh, cool. and so yeah, so there's a Bartholomew prize in, in short fiction and, uh, I submitted that for a contest. Didn't win that, but it, it, that story was actually published in a journal out of, um, I want to say it was, it's in the Midwest. I want to say it's out of Illinois somewhere, but it's called the Packingtown Review. Um, and so they, they, that's the only story that was published outside of, um, the, the book format. A lot of these were just sort of hard to publish in journals because they're, uh, they're either very long or very short and they do a lot of weird formal stuff and so um it's just hard to find places to submit them to uh, and i think they also just work better as a as a whole collection they're supposed to meant to sort of mirror each other and work off of each other so yeah Fury and the
1: Matricide and Sound. That was the very. That's, I think it's the third story in it. Whatever. Yeah, it's the second story. Yeah, 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 yeah that's mm-hmm. that's one. You know, that mm-hmm. one and the, uh, the ball game. At
2: was, Zibalba. I think it's Zibalba. Zibalba. I think. Yeah, it's a it's based on a Mayan myth. Yeah, yeah, so right. no, yeah. Um, yeah. Those two were particularly, uh,
1: I really enjoyed both of those, but I wonder about, I know that they. you talk about the Greek mythology and everything, and uh, Orestes is the main character, and it, it's his mother.
0: In the first, in the the mother's
1: Yeah,
2: mother's yeah. So, so what is so, the myth behind that? <laughs> mm-hmm. So Fury, or Fury, Matricide, and Sound is based off of um, a famous um, uh, Greek trilogy by Aeschylus uh, called the Oresteia. Um, and in the Oresteia, uh, Orestes is uh you know he's Agamemnon's son, who was the you know the leader of the Trojan army that went to the you know, troy in in the Iliad right and um and there's varying versions of this myth, but um uh, some people say that he sacrificed his youngest daughter Iphigenia uh, before going off to war uh, to sort of guarantee success on his side and Some say that he sacrificed a deer and pretended it was Iphigenia, either way he was married to Clytemnestra. And Clytemnestra got wind of the sacrifice of their youngest daughter and got pissed. And so when he returned home from the Trojan War and he comes home with his, uh, with his mistress that he's picked up along the way as one of his spoils of war, she, she murders him. And, um, uh, you know, Greek culture was an honor culture. So if somebody murders your father, you have to avenge their death. And, um, but it's also dishonorable to kill your mother. So, um, Orestes is sort of in a bind and, um, and the, and the play takes course over that and, and it sort of ends with this sort of, What's considered sort of the first sort of uh, courtroom drama scene in, in Western canon, uh, you know, it's like, uh, Athena comes down and, and plays as sort of the judge, uh, in this trial and they, you know, sort of agree that they're gonna uh, keep these furies who have escaped into to Greece as a result of this conflict that Orestes is having, uh, Orestes is having, that, that they're gonna sort of, uh, uh, you know, have this, have this trial to keep the Furies under base. So what I did was I sort of flipped it on its head and, um and turned it into an assisted suicide story. So, uh, Orestes is, is a heavy metal musician and he's, you know, he works at an auto zone. He's a working class sort of guy and, and he doesn't really have a lot of money and his mother has been released from, uh, a, a, you know, a, a a mental hospital that's actually sort of, you know, run by the prison system, uh, after she sort of, um, you know, the, the is that she sort of murdered his, Uh, father while she was sleepwalking, but it sort of left up in the air, you know, whether the reader believes that or not. And, and so there's sort of, you know, she's sick now, she's physically sick, and he's taking care of her at his apartment, and, um, and she sort of brings up this idea that she wants to commit suicide, and he's helping her, uh, with that. So, you know, it's, it's again, a loose retelling of that myth. I think that one's the closest, though, in terms of, you know, following the additional, the, the, the traditional through line. I think people who have read that trilogy will find some interesting sort of Easter eggs in it, um, with, with what I'm doing. Um, now, okay. his, his mother is named Dawn. Uh, and the, and the story is sort of about breaking down sort of the redemption narrative and the progress narrative. And so, um, you know, he's, he's killing, killing the dawn. Uh, and you know, there's a, there's sort of a joke in, in the Odyssey. If you, dawn always comes along with her rosy red fingers. Uh, and so I give her diabetes and the rosy red fingers because she's, you know, diabetic. And, um, and so yeah, so he's helping his, his mother commit suicide. And, uh, and that story has, has been so far, uh, it's emotionally jarring to, to a, yeah. a lot of people that have read it so far. It's a, um, yeah. You yeah know, I put it I up like early playing. in the
1: class yeah. I think the one thing that struck me about it was uh, the the thread that we talked about initially in the show you know Orestes would not he does not play the blues he's, he's a yeah. you know this band that he's in had, had been fairly prominent at one point they opened for Metallica and stuff like that but they kind of receded, But he had this idol um uh a bluesman and he just felt like he was not uh that he was not. Um, Worthy of playing the blues, or he did not.
0: He didn't feel a white boy should play the blues. Yeah, yeah, it's
1: yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. uh, Eric Clapton has no problem.
3: (laughs)
0: Like
3: felt like (laughs) appropriation to him, I think.
1: Yeah, I think.
2: I think. uh, Yeah, that was that was you know, um, you know, yeah, that was just one of the you know one of the angles into sort of the you know um, that story has you know is um, probably the least uh, overtly political of them. Although it does still have some of those political threads running through and I really wanted it to, to, have that. Um, I think that, that story is really a, you know, a narrative about the you know American healthcare system. But I was thinking about these, you know, um, you know, I played bands when I was younger and, you know, never really broke through with any of them, you know, but, um, and was disappointed about that for a time. And now, you know, now I'm 40 and, uh, you know, I look at some of the musicians who made it right. And you've been, you know, when you're a 40 year old punk rock musician, you know, it's like, it's a different thing than being a 25 year old punk rock musician. Right. And, um, and those bands, even though they had some, you know, financial success and were able to live off their music when they were younger, now they're sort of on this like permanent nostalgia tour and um, you know, it's a lifestyle where you don't get healthcare and you don't get, you know, benefits and all those kinds of things. And um and I think, you know, it's one of those things that like looking back now, it's like, Oh man, maybe I dodged a bullet by you know, never never breaking big because I could be maybe fifty did, and still yeah. be on tour trying to, you know, drum up money, uh, you know, yeah. playing these songs that are thirty years old or whatever. Um but yeah, so that you know, there's there's a insurance
3: is GoFundMes.
2: Yeah. There is a blues bar in Houston uh called the Big Easy. Uh and there's there's these guys that play up there just like, you know, have been playing there for generations and just, you know, they're you know not all of them, but like you know, quite a few of them, their bodies look pretty ravaged and you know, you know, in the music scene, you know, there's you know, drugs and uh fast lifestyles and all that kind of stuff that goes along with it.
3: I think in every
0: you know, the blues scene but also the
3: not a lot of good night's sleep. Yeah.
0: Nope. Yeah. Lack and, of sleep, lack of nutrition, constant yeah. travel.
3: Yeah. And
2: so it's yeah. just looking at that, you know, looking at that Ooh, aging that musician's was. lifestyle, um, you know, across the board. Uh, and you I know. Like and, part of it. Yeah. 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 Or Orestes has a sort of a, a cocaine habit that he's, you know, uh, not been able to kick uh successfully and um and you know, and so, you know, and but I mean I try to look at that from a you know, I, I know a lot of uh, aging musicians just for being in the, in the music scene for a long time. And, you know, um, I don't think it's, you know, uh, I don't think it's like those stories are as cut and dry. And I think those people are, are deserving of empathy like anybody else. And so, um, you know, I, I really try to, I truly really try to show that, uh, I really try to show that angle, uh, in that story. I mean, in general, I think in this collection, I try to, um, Try to bring some empathy to characters that I don't think are, are typically uh, dealt with in, in fiction, or at least not in popular American fiction, uh, mm-hmm. and, and bring some empathy to, to, to those characters. Yeah,
0: I have quite a bit of personal um, interaction, shall we say, with the negative side of um, addiction and how it affects family members. So I do have a little bit of trouble. I try to be sympathetic. But I also see it from the side of the people that were truly harmed who did nothing. Yeah, who I think, um,
2: apartments. I, yeah, I think that that stuff's definitely, um, I think that, that stuff's do. definitely, uh, I don't, I don't mean to, um, yeah, I don't mean, it's, it's just to side with them over family. I, I think one of the right, things, no, no, that, I'm, that's yeah,
1: okay. I think I what really I, I
2: think one of the things that I think about uh, uh, addiction. Um, is that, you know, and I think that this is, you know, one of those things, right? People who are addicted and people who are family members of Acts, I think that this is something we should uh, think about. Like in America, right? Like in all across Europe and, and elsewhere in the world, like there's much more of sort of a harm reduction approach to dealing with addiction. Uh, in America, basically, they send you to a 12 steps program or a rehab center and they tell you to pray to God, right? <laughs> like, um, and it works for some people, but it doesn't work for a lot of people, right? And And there's just not a lot of investment in helping addicts in America um, because we we do sort of take this, oh, it's your fault uh, uh, approach. Um, And so I I think, and and also because it's also, you know, drugs have been uh, tied up in this, in this drug war policy, which is, you know, based in racism, (laughs) based in all these sort of draconian uh, measures. And I I just think that, you know um, part of what I I try to get at with some of the substance abuse stuff in, in the book is trying to get people to see that, you know, that these are, (laughs) <laughs> These are larger problems than the individuals they affect, and that you know we should we should have some more sort of attention paid to like sort of how do we actually uh, deal with this but, population? Yeah,
0: I think legalization is um I, I, just kind of across the board. Yeah, uh, but but not one hundred percent controlled legalization. You yeah, know, I mean like I, gun laws maybe in a way because yeah, throwing I mean, people into prison for taking cocaine it isn't working. That's like debtor's prison.
2: Yeah, exactly. I, I I agree. And I think, it's I think, that, yeah, I agree. I think that, um, that, that drug, I mean, drug addiction should not be criminalized. I mean, if you mm. commit a crime while on drugs, you should be held accountable for the crime you committed, but like the act of yeah. taking drugs uh, should not be a crime, right? Because, you know, you know, we all say that it's a medical issue. Well, if it's a, if it's a, you know, you wouldn't send somebody to prison for having cancer, you know, <laughs> so it's like, um, right. it's, it's just, uh, yeah. And so, um, but I also think just in, in terms of the ways we tell those stories, I mean, like the ways in which, and this gets back into it, you know, it's like when.
0: Here, take this medication because you're in pain. Oh, your body got used to that, so we're going to give you a little more. Oh, your yeah. body got used to that, so you're going to give you a little more. Oh, well, you know, I need more because it's not working anymore. Oh, now you're an addict. Well, we're and going it's not also. To give you any.
2: Who is it? The Sackler family that, that created yeah. the, uh, what was the name? What's the name of that? Oxycontin. Time? Yeah,
3: Oxycontin. Oxycontin.
2: Oxycontin. They, they marketed that as non-addictive, right? And, and did it's for addictive. a long time. And then also gave doctors incentives for prescribing it and, you know, created. It. it's like, you can trace that, that whole opioid crisis. You can trace that back. And then that's getting back at the capitalism thing, right. You can trace it all back to this one family uh, that made a series of decisions that affected millions and millions of people. Right. And they, yeah. and they haven't been held accountable for it in any kind of way, uh, shape or form. And uh, you know, I, I just doubt that would happen if you had, uh you know, pharmaceutical companies that were run by, uh, workers making, tech casting votes on, you know, how they were going yeah. to administer these drugs, right? I just don't think that that would happen. In, uh,
3: so, uh, Percy, uh-huh. um, the author had a theory that, um, uh, it was a, it was a female, right? From her mm-hmm. point of view, if I remember, um, from her point of view that, uh, she, she thinks that the Percy thing never happened. It was just people playing like an elaborate performance art prank. Mm-hmm. That whole thing. Just gave me a Andy Kaufman vibe, you know was this a mass hallucination, and it got me wondering, is Percy not just Perseus but is it is it also perception
2: yeah um i didn't i didn 't intend that that 's interesting uh, uh you know and there 's a lot you know uh, there's this uh this this uh, fiction craft writer named Robert Boswell who has a book and he talks about narrative spandrels and there 's like these uh, moments of junction that happen within a narrative and if you write things you'll you'll notice these things that you don't intend but this like repetitive okay. symbol keeps getting keeps referenced back about up. and i do it you know i do it in this like elaborate over the top sort of way In a lot of the stories i mean the you know the, the Bell Witch hunter also uh andrew jackson rewrites history in that story and um and you know like like these like ways in which um um you know that we we think of reality, we think of it as like you know the table and chairs and the the material objects that exist in our world. But I think so much more of our actual reality is what happens inside of our heads, right? and um and there's so much in the ways in which we tell history that there are whole stories and cultures and things that are forgotten completely. Um there's other things that get emphasized uh probably. More than they should be, um and so you know I do it in this overt way in the collection to sort of poke fun at it, but I think that that actually happens all the time that we have these yeah. um think these things these ideas that we just keep repeating over like the, you know the American dream thing right i mean i don't you know it's never really been true in my lifetime. I don't know if it was at, you know, one point in history, it's gone away or whatever, you know, but like, um, you know, I mean, there's some social mobility in America. It's not like it's non-existent, right? But the vast majority of people will die in the whatever economic class they were born into, right? And, um, and you know, when you look at our mobility scores compared to other nations, we're like 40th or 50th, somewhere in that, you know, ranking. You know, there are countries that you would not think of as being socially mobile places that are ahead of us. so- um, you know, it's like this story that we've told so many times that people sort of accept it as this common sense idea. And when you really start to pick it apart, you realize, like, there's just so much of it that's just not true, right? And so, um, yeah. And so, like, you know, in, in my version, these rappers sort of start talking about this character who might have done this weird, uh, magic with his painting. Um, and, and, and then people start to have memories of it. And I think, you know, I think that's the same thing the same thing at wait way it works in America, right? You tell people that there was this magical time in the past when America was great and now we're going into the shitter, right? And it's like or into the crapper. Sorry, excuse me. Uh but you know, and like and, and, and you know, but you know, if you if you really start to look at it from other perspectives and other people say, like, When was the time when this country was uh, you know, so great if you're, <laughs> if you're, how, in a how old's,
3: how old's that expression going to hell in a handbasket anyway? Yeah. Yeah.
2: <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And so, you know, um, yeah. And so it's like, it's asking people to sort of pick apart some of those things that we just accept as common sense truths, right? And, and think about them and, and really, you know, put those, put those narratives to the test and, uh, and, and see if they hold up, you know, and I think you'll, you'll find a lot of them don't.
3: Yeah. In the graffiti thing, you refer to like wholly anonymous men who, you know, leave leave a presence and don't take credit for their work yet. Don't yeah. they tag using their alias typically?
2: Yeah. Um, yeah. But I th- you know, so I, uh you know, I, I used to hang out with graffiti crew. I never was very good at actually doing graffiti, but, uh but sometimes I'd play lookout and like hang around with some graffiti writers and you know, nobody really knows who they are, but some of these guys, they're, you know, up all over the city of Houston. Right. And like it, people drive by it every day and see their names and recognize their names, but have no idea who's the person uh behind that art form. I just find, uh, graffiti as an art form a very interesting art form in general right it's it's illegal but like what are cave paintings but like graffiti right and so uh and so yeah um and also you know there's so much that that goes into it around the sort of politics of uh, when when a when a corporation decides to like just you know abandon a building and, and leave it there as a tax write-off right it's like then somebody goes and paints something on it and then they've committed a felony right and so um and and so just like thinking about the politics of graffiti i just like i just think it's an interesting art form um and you know um i have a lot of friends who have done it and most most of them actually found their ways into the legitimate art world at this point but you know um uh but yeah at one point in time they were just yeah yeah well and you know graffiti is not a it's not a it's a pretty serious offense if you get caught doing it they uh, in Texas, anyways, they take pictures of every time they take down a graffiti piece. And if they recognize your name, then they'll go back and charge you with every and single. Get everyone. Yeah. Yeah. And so and that's also a thing that I find. So, you know, the people that are compelled to do it, they do it at great risk. And 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 they um, and, and that risk is still worth it to them. Right. And so I think that that's just always very interesting. Uh, anytime you, you see somebody doing that. Right. It's, it's always just interesting. Like. What is the what is the payoff they're getting from that, right? Like you know, and 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 why is the statement so worth that risk? And um and yeah, and so um and I I just find it interesting, you know. It's like,
1: never seen. I mean, I, I've anybody in the act, you know. But there again, I'm not out at three in the morning anymore. When <laughs> <all> I <laughs> yeah. when they do it, you know. if it shows up. Yeah, yeah. So you know,
3: Whenever Whenever, yeah, whenever somebody's backs turned, I guess.
0: We we actually have uh at least one. There's a lot of. Painted buildings, murals around Cincinnati where there's like a building that's the side is sitting there and there's yeah, but, windows. But com- commissioned murals. Yeah. Right, right. But we actually do have at least one downtown graffiti mural that was, so my question there is, is it graffiti if it's not, um, or... if it's sanctioned? I mean, yeah, does there's... that just make it art period or is graffiti, yeah. I know graffiti is a style of art. And people yeah, do. I commission that style of
2: art i think there's debate about that in the graffiti world you know that that there there are artists that are more forgiving of that and ones that are like you know i don't do legal legal walls (laughs) so uh yeah um yeah i mean i just find it just interesting i mean in general i think that this like you know i mean we're stuck with it right uh because it's existed for so long but just the the idea of private property is just such an uh uh, to me, it feels like a mistake of history, but like Native Americans didn't have it. right? Yeah. And, uh, and so, um, you know, I think, yeah, I mean, we're born onto this land that, you know, had all this food and was everything was you know provided for. And then, you know, somebody decided to build a wall around it and start selling it off to people. Right. And so, um, yeah, I think that, you know, it's sort of a, you know, if you really look at it from just the pure idea level, it's a pretty corrosive and sort of absurd idea, but again, we're, you know, it's been it's been so long in, in practice in you can't just you can't just undo it overnight right but yeah. i think graffiti really is an art form that speaks to that right that like you know um, somebody goes out and claims ownership of something that you know has been left abandoned and uh um and you know somebody else says overpasses, no that's actually mine
0: overpasses.
2: yeah you wonder about hieroglyphs and antique railroad right, cars they
0: perceived yeah. at the time you know with, yeah,
1: yeah. What do you have put the death if you were caught, you know, depicting yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and scene
0: caught drawn cats and eyeballs on the wall? Tag. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Say, I don't know. Say, it, you know, papyrus was for the very, very, very wealthy.
1: Well, no, they um, put it right on the wall.
0: Right. Yeah. Uh huh. But you'd have to use a chisel.
1: Right. You know? Yeah. yeah. Kind of
0: hard to get away with that.
2: Well, you thought it through more than me, obviously. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, for me, it's like interesting. I, you know, I, maybe it's just my own, uh, I've always been a very curious person and, uh, and I don't like to take anybody's word for anything. So I've always hung out around in a lot of scenes that like, you know, uh, you know, quote unquote, you know, not that any of us are normal, but normal people that don't go into, you know, so like graffiti writers, punk rock, uh, you know, just like in a lot of worlds that, you know, uh, you know, I, I haven't written a story or I haven't, I've written some stories. I haven't published any stories yet about it, but I used to play a lot of, uh, un- at a lot of underground poker games in Houston. And, um, and I stopped doing it because, you know, it got a little tight on my pocketbook, but, uh, uh, but, you know, I was almost more drawn to that scene less for like the gambling than more for just like getting to go to places where you have to, you know, knock on the door and there's a camera watching you <laughs> just the sort of, you know, the underground okay. nature of it, you know? Yeah.
0: The speakeasiness.
2: Yeah, I just, I'm just interested. Well, you know, I just think like so much, and you know, this is, I guess, getting back at, you know, to the, to book a little bit. Like one of the things that I think is, I think a lot of ways our value systems are kind of backwards and so, like we, we have very um, heavy moral feelings about these underground cultures that exist and, you know, graffiti writing is taboo and drug use is taboo and all these other things that are. And yet, like, you know, the daily order of business for so many corporations in America is really to exploit uh, people even to the point of of murder in other countries right and so so much of our lifestyles are held up by that yeah, practice yeah yeah and in here too yeah but I, mean, I think like you know you know a lot of american middle-class lifestyles held up by like what happens overseas what our military is doing that we don't even know a lot about and uh and so i think like you know uh you know it's interesting to me that you know we're we're so morally outraged at you know how people have sex or how people you know uh you know you know receive pleasure in their daily lives right or like or unwind after a day of work right but we're we we sort of don't question the morality of what these ceos do when they're sitting behind a desk pushing a pen around and it ends up in you know uh, a whole town's Waters. water supply going bad or you know whatever right so right. Um, and i think that if we if yeah. we focused more on that,
0: that water problem in michigan
2: yeah i think if we focused so more on hot. the on the latter and less on, like, you know, shaming individuals for whatever issues they might have. Yeah. I, yeah. L- I
3: like your music you choices. They all right?
0: know. Music,
3: yeah, you yeah. correctly identified the best Stones album as Exile on Main Street. Yeah, that's my favorite. Uh, what's, what's number two? I think it's either Beggar's Banquet or Let It Bleed, but I don't know. Yeah,
2: I like Some Girls a lot, too. Um, Some
3: Girls is great.
2: Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I love the Stones. Uh, yeah, I, I like a lot of... I like a lot of, I like a lot of different kinds of music. Let's listen to the Miley
3: Cyrus thing was cool. And I, in my notes, I typed, is she with the flaming lips? And then later on <laughs> you're listening to the flaming lips every day.
2: Yeah. I mean, so, I think that that was, um, some of that's where, you know, um, I listen
3: to a lot of flaming lips myself. So.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Um, I think the book was written about you know, the bulk of it was written about three or four years ago. So I think she was a little bit more central, uh, a figure in the pop culture moment at the, at the time that I wrote mm. that story. Um, but I, I just, I, I liked the um the idea of her
3: humping a, a gold yeah <laughs> with a <laughs> purple dildo yeah yeah
0: uh, like okay now i have a question um there's there's a satirical element throughout <laughs> the stories and there's it's like you've mixed satire and um and then sadness and morality and you know you've, you've given them all so that it's not just one dimensional it's very dimensional And I was wondering, things like, for instance, I'm a fan of Weird Al, partly because he's amazing, um, (laughs) in my opinion, and partly because we share a birthday. So (laughs) I didn't know that when I became a fan of him initially. Um, (laughs) So my question is, um, how much does, I mean, were you, how much does satire play for you in in what you're doing?
2: Yeah,
0: um, I, yeah, I, yeah.
2: Yeah, I'm definitely influenced by by satire as a as a genre, in a lot of ways, though, I would, for lack of a better for lack of a better way to think about it, it's like also trying to satirize satire. Like, you know, what's that? What's that instinct right? of, of making fun of things and and and, all, and calling out while I'm doing it? So I mean, but yeah, I think that satire is, is a it can be a very powerful uh, tool of critique. I like a lot of um, satirists. Um, uh, you know, I, I, again, I, you know, I try to cut it both ways, right? I try to give you these absurd surrealist sort of uh, versions of reality. Um, but also as a way of sort of shining a light on just how absurd, our, you know, the, the version of reality that we live in is. Right. And so I think yeah. satire can be a powerful tool for, um, for doing, I mean, you know, the, the ball game at ball right. It's about these, this rich guy who's holding a basketball tournament and sort of uh, getting these desperate, uh, black characters to you know, play for this. I don't want to give away the prize, but you play for this sort of prize. That's not really a prize. And, um, yeah. and so, um, but I mean so much of our, our, our culture is set up that way, right? You have these people at the top who are benefiting from, you know, our labor, uh and and yet they're like, you know, making us play games against each other and constantly compete with each other for these little scraps, <laughs> you know, fall off the yeah. off the table, right? Yeah. And so in my version it's this very absurd, uh very dark uh version of reality, but you know, it's also asking you a question okay. like how absurd is and dark is this you know, version that we live it's, in right now? You know? it takes,
3: it takes eat the rich and flips it on its head. Right?
0: Yeah, yeah. So kind of, uh, kind of like choosing between being able to afford your rent and having health insurance. Yeah, that's not a choice. They say yeah. it's a choice. It's not. It yeah. really
1: shouldn't be. So, well, yeah. Judgment Day is the, the center piece of the book. Uh-huh. We're to talk about what Judgment Day is.
2: Yeah. yeah so. So Judgment Day is a uh in my in my book is a hallucinogenic plant um it's uh it's a uh, it's, it's a plant that people say they smoke it and they have uh, born again experiences and uh and so um it's playing with that sort of idea of apocalypse uh um you know because apocalypse traditionally is not just a you know, we tend to think think of it as the doom and gloom part of it, but you know, Apocalypse is in its original Greek uh interpretation is this uh, you know, idea of sweeping away the old to make room for the new. Um mm-hmm. and so judgment Day is this like hallucinogenic plant, you smoke it, you have these born-again experiences. So this guy smokes this hallucinogenic plant and he wakes up as an entirely different person, except he still has he has the memories of this person that he woke up as, but he also has the memories of this guy who he remembers being when he smoked this plant. Um, and these two guys that are in his head. So one is this uh slacker uh, bartender uh who you know reads a lot of philosophy and is kind of too smart for his own good um and has sort of just decided that you know he doesn't like society so he's just going to kind of drop out of it as much as possible and then you have the other guy is you know who he wakes up as is this very highly ambitious uh, real estate agent who's doing a lot of like property development around Houston and his business is one of the 100 most profitable businesses in the country um and so to me those are two sort of archetypal uh, versions of, uh, whiteness in our, in our culture. Right. And so, um, and so it's what happens when you, when you stick those in the same body and they have sort of an identity crisis, um, and, and, in sort of looking at the sort of tragic fallout that happens, uh, as this guy is trying to come to terms with how he can be two people at the, at the same time. Um, you know, like full disclosure, you know, I, so when I was playing in punk rock bands in my early twenties, I had, two very good friends of mine uh, who both passed away of, of drug overdoses about three months apart when I was, when I was 25. And, um, and we are all very rebellious and very, uh you know, live very fast lives. And, uh and we're, you know, in our own ways we're very miserable. Uh, and, uh and I was kind of like, you know, we're, we're all these middle-class white kids in America. Right. And that's supposed to be your, your ticket. Right? Like you, and you look at like the ways in which you can win the lottery of birth, like you could do a lot worse than that. Right. And so, uh, wondering like, why was that? And so that was what sort of got me thinking about, um, some of those themes that get addressed in the book is sort of like, you know, and I, what I would really think about is that we were, we we're rebellious, but in America, you're sort of taught that rebellion is sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And, and I, you know, as fun as those things can be, um, I don't think they're rebellion. Right. And so, um, right. and so we got, we got sold on sort of a false deal, right? <laughs> like, and we weren't taught, you know, effective, um, effective forms of political and social thought that might've, uh, helped us rebel in more effective ways and actually uh, upset the power structure in some sort of way. Right. In, in, in the sense, we were just sort of, um, you know, I mean, those, you know, in a sense, those guys were victimized too, right. By this, uh, by some of these ruling narratives in, in America. And, um, and yeah. And so, and so looking at, you know, how does this idea of white privilege hurt uh, white people? Right. And it's like, we were all very conscious of our privilege and didn't want it and wanted to reject it. But the only ways we were taught to do that is like, just drop out and, you know, do drugs, <laughs> and that that's, that doesn't really har- harm the people who are uh, causing all the division and, and making things the ways that uh, which which upset us to begin with, right? So um, yeah, that's where we're where. Yeah, the, but
0: the, the hippies spawned the rebellion of Reaganism. Yeah, uh, that spawns the rebellion of um, like social awareness or, or recycling. You know, yeah. I mean, so.
1: Clinton was a reaction to I the think, I think, previous regime. Yeah. I think, well, so.
3: yeah. I think there's there. definitely, but
0: in a sense, Clinton was almost a Republican in a, in a way. He
3: was he yeah. was Reagan light.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think there's
2: definitely yeah. there's definitely good politics that can come out of music scenes. So, like, you know,
0: mm-hmm.
2: uh, part of how I got introduced to leftist politics was just play, like, listen to punk rock a bunch. Yellow Biafra. When I was a kid, yeah, and heard of the dead Kennedys, and you know um, you know, a lot of, you know, a lot of those kinds of bands. Uh, and I, so I do think that the music can offer a vehicle, art can offer a vehicle, but at the end of the day, right? Like, I mean, I think, you know, when you talk about the sixties, it gets mm-hmm. you know, a lot about the counterculture of the hippies, but, um, but a lot of the real political work being done in the sixties was like student organizers, uh, mm-hmm. Chicano activists, uh, Black Panthers, uh, you know, these groups, and they don't tend to get as much of that attention as being part of that counterculture of the, of the sixties. You know, so I think, but I think like, you know, I think in general that, you know, that, um, I think I have a line in the collection that says, that you know, they sell us many revolutions to keep the real one from happening, right? Yeah. I, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah.
0: distractions.
2: I, yeah, and I think that that's a lot of what happened. Like, you know, well, you know, the punk rock scene. At the end of the day, right? Like, the, I got a lot of good politics out of it, but you know, there's just as many uh crazy right wingers in the punk rock scene as there is in any oh, sure. other walk of, of life in America, right? That, like, a lot of people oh, are yeah. into that culture for the fashion no, and then the really. Yeah, they don't really care about the politics. I think that's yeah, they true. just
3: they just like the skinhead.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean I think culture pushes a lot of political change. So I don't I don't mean to discount the value of culture either. I mean I think
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, there was some value to the ways in which the counterculture of the nineteen sixties sort of upended a lot of things that were happening in America at the time. Um but I, I do think at the end of the day, like we we, we keep the we keep re- making reforms to our culture and making small reforms to our politics and, and things do get better, right? There's not, there's no progress that comes out of it, but we, we keep a lot of the systems and structures in place that are organizing the really bad stuff that keeps perpetuating itself through time. Uh And, and I don't, you know, some of it is probably human nature, right? I mean, it's hard to separate how much out is, is human nature uh, versus not but i do think that at least some of these divisions that we have in our society and our culture could uh, if we had different systems uh, might be things in the past you know it's so hard to tell which ones and which which not but uh, but i do think you know and i also think that no, like being able to identify the problem i think a lot of people are able to identify the problem um and, and we just like haven't been given a set of uh, good solutions for how to deal with it. And, uh, and yeah, and, uh, and, uh, you know, I don't know all the answers. Uh, You're know, part of writing this book is, is asking other people, <laughs> hey, what do you think, uh, too? Asking the questions.
0: Yeah. It does yeah. spark discussion. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: All right. Well, Aaron, do you have any final words Mike?
3: Kudos on the phrase booty juice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: That is actually, that's actually, yeah. Yeah. I, I ha- actually have to give, uh, well, I don't want to give credit to the person because I want to give, give them away, but but uh, a friend of mine who uh, uh, ended up in an institution, that was what they called it inside That's the uh, institution. So called yeah. the
3: whatever's in the syringe is booty juice.
2: Yeah, so I didn't actually invent that. I just, I sort of borrowed it from just here. <laughs> so, <yeah. laughs>
0: it's, it's
3: hilarious. Okay. So. Right, yeah it's, it's been fun oh. i enjoyed the i enjoyed the stories
0: we have social twitter yeah uh-huh pod instagram yeah uh-huh pod facebook yeah uh-huh pod website wwwyeah u h huhcom h u h so let us know Hit us back have a great week